Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. All right. Now, if you guys could stand, I'm going to read the um, passage I'm going to go through for today. Um, only part of it's going to be on the screen because I didn't do a good job with my notes this week. But So I'm going to read the whole thing, and then at the end I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. You're going to say, thanks be to God. And it's just our routine of acknowledging that God's words mean more than our words, and we're grateful. So Romans chapter 8, verses 5, um, eventually through 13. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, who are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys can have a seat. As I was um, working through this passage, uh, coming off of the last couple weeks in chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, and trying to figure out like, what the progression is, the word that came to mind the most is help, is the idea of, of the help that God has given us in chapter 8 that we didn't have in chapter 7. And, so that, and then we don't help, we have kind of like a love-hate relationship with help because we need help a lot. We like getting help, but help means that you needed help, and so we don't really like the fact that we, didn't, that we needed help, right? So this took me back to conversations I have every time I do a premarital class. I end up in Genesis chapter 2, and, um, and the part where it says, God says, um, it's not good that man's alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And I spent a lot of time in that because I think especially in our day and age, that women can take that term helper as like a derogatory term when, it, when it's not. That word helper in the Old Testament is used like 16 times and 14 times it's used of God. And so God will say like, Israel, you guys have gotten yourselves in a real mess. I'm going to have to come help you again. And it's strength. It's like a military term most of the time. And so I spend some time talking about that. If the verse is casting aspersions on anybody's competence, it's not Eve's. It's Adam's. Right? It's like God saying, Adam, I gave you a job to do. You can't do it. We're going to have to get a woman in here to do it, to like get it right. You know? Like, that was funnier than I, that was funnier. <laughs> I thought it was funnier. Um, in my own mind. Yeah. And, uh, and, and what strikes me, what struck me at one point is the irony that men are, and women, let's be honest, women have trouble asking for help too. I don't think as much as men, but who knows. But guys don't you know, aren't good at asking. I'm not good at asking for help. Most guys aren't good at asking for help. And it's just ironic. So help is this convoluted relationship. We saw that in Nicaragua, like the stereotypical thing. What's the stereotypical situation where guys don't want to ask for help? Directions, directions. In Nicaragua, one of the things we did was went up on this volcano and um, it was on, it was 
we go up in this volcano and slide down it on, on little pieces of wood with metal attached to them. And it's, it's um, beautiful. And I think I have another picture of like staring down into the pit of the volcano, because it is an active volcano. And at one point, we were on an active volcano with a lightning storm coming in with pieces of wood with metal on the bottom of them. And I was thinking, this is a horrible idea. Like, I don't know how we got here. We better get down the thing fast. But on the way in, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. So Josh is driving the van into the place, and it's paved for a while, but then it's not paved. It's just dirt roads, and there's all these forks in the road. And Josh always takes the right one, and, it's, and there's no signs. And it's really impressive that Josh knows exactly where he's going. Well, on the way out, it was dark, and it was a thunderstorm, and then it was not as impressive because he took some wrong forks. And after about 15 minutes, everybody in the van, all the adults in the van are like, we are totally lost right now. And Katie, I swear, was about to say it. She's I'd like the, it was on the tip of her tongue, like because there was someone that passed us, and she was about to say, "Josh, shouldn't we ask for directions?" And I'm like emotionally willing her not to. Like Katie, don't you dare say that to him. Don't take away his dignity. He knows exactly where he is. And she didn't say it. She didn't say it. And then we got back on the main road, and I said, "Oh man, glad that happened, Josh. Josh, were we lost?" And Josh is like, not really. You know, <laughs> it's perfect. He's like, I knew we'd get back on this road. I just didn't know we'd get back that way. And it was fine. So help. Um, help, like, requires, we need it, but it requires a, a surrender of control. And so we resist it. Paul, in this section of Romans, if you, especially if you go back two messages where John was preaching through John, or Romans chapter 7, um, Paul has been like, verbally processing by writing it down. So I don't know, that's not quite verbally, I don't know what that is, but he's been processing out like how he gets in his life from where he is to where he wants to be. I mean, Romans 7 is just a struggle. It's more like, here's who I am and here's who I want to be. Here's who God wants me to be, who I'm supposed to be. And I can't figure out how to get from who I am to who I'm supposed to be. And that is like a struggle that most of us, um, if not, should be all of us, like we identify with that struggle. And Paul in Romans 7 has identified pieces. You know, he's going through stuff about the law and he's about his flesh and about his mind and the Lord and him and all this stuff. And he ends up saying, I know that nothing good dwells in me, in my flesh. I have the desire to do what's right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. I don't do the good that I want, but the evil I don't want, I keep on doing if I don't do what I want, it's no longer me doing it, but something in me, sin that dwells in me, is doing it. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil's right there. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but see a different law at work in my members. And he ends up, he gets to the point where he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now what is that but a cry for help? Help me! I need help. And so, the, and so God... It, is going to give it to him um, in chapter 8. Like the biggest difference is that chapter 7 decides, uh, decide, like the, the picture depicts a man who is fighting a battle, but he's fighting it alone. And chapter 8 describes a man who has help in that battle. Before chapter 8, in the letter to the Romans, Paul mentions the Holy Spirit twice. In chapter 8, he mentions the Holy Spirit some 20 times. It's really clear what he's doing and the shift that he's making and um, what, what, what we're to get out of it. Now, between that message about chapter 7 and this message about the Holy Spirit and the help that we've been given in fighting that fight in chapter 8 was the message I gave 
um, last week on, on verses 1 through 4, there is, there is therefore now no condemnation, zero condemnation, none for those who are in Christ Jesus. I got rare feedback on that message um, from people that listen to me every week and like superlative comments. Like that's the best message you've ever given. So from my perspective, um, I prepped that message, a lot of it, three weeks beforehand, before we went to Nicaragua. I didn't get as far as I wanted to and wasn't happy with it. We went to Nicaragua. I didn't think about it at all. Then I went to the beach with my family and really didn't think much about it um, and spent one day when, when my family went to the ocean and I stayed home and worked the message for a while and then came in Saturday morning last week and finished it. And so my, my perspective on the message was is pretty clumsy and I would organize it differently. And it's not like false humility. It's just the reality. You never know what's going to happen. But I knew when I started prepping the message that I needed to hear, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like I knew I'd hit a vein in myself, which doesn't necessarily mean that I hit a vein in anybody else, but like it it wasn't the passage, the message was okay. The passage is spectacular. And I think it's rare that I do this, but I would encourage you to go back and listen to that message. Um, In it, what I ended up discerning was like, condemnation, we experience condemnation at a couple different levels. And one is primary, like with God. And there is reason for it because God did make us to be somebody and we're not because of sin. And so we have a problem with God. And, but then that trickles down into like secondary forms of condemnation. We know we can't fix this one. So we end up seeking affirmation from the people around us and we compare ourselves to each other. And so we affirm ourselves in some situations and condemn ourselves ourselves in in other situations and that is the hot mess that we live in as the world and it leads to like a third type of condemnation when you look in the mirror and the and the passage was just saying that in Christ it not only takes away condemnation from God but but it restores the affirmation that we're meant to receive from God which is again in Genesis you are very good and you're not very good because of the things that you've done you're very good because of the things that Christ has done on your behalf And so that affirmation and the lack of condemnation isn't based on your performance. And so you can detach it from everything. I said that it's it's strange that you're better at receiving criticism after you realize that there's no condemnation because it's not about your performance. Like you're free in so many ways. And... um, and I, again, I just realized, like, I needed, to, I needed to hear that. The law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. And, and I needed to, to stay in it. It's rare that I think about my messages past when I preach them because I got another message to preach that I got to be all in on. But this one, like, I kept repeating it um, in, in my mind. And so that's in between chapter 7 and this passage in chapter 8. But even though there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we still have the chapter 7 problem that we got to fix. And that's where Paul is moving next in chapter 8 is what do we do about it? And so the struggle is the same, but something's changed. And the something that's changed is that he's given us the Holy Spirit to help us with it. So I'm going to go through um, these sections of this passage relatively quickly and, and point out these three things. One is a contrast between the flesh and the spirit. Two is the ben- are the benefits of the Spirit. And then third is the call of those um, who were in the Spirit. And the big, the thing that I spent the most time this week on, if I say 
the words indicative and imperative. How many people have any idea what I'm talking about? Can you remember like English class, the difference between indicative and imperative? Is there like a seventh grader that wants to explain this to us right now? Um, I asked this about the Whiskey Rebellion a couple months ago, and one person was like, oh, yes, this is the one time I'll be able to use that. Indicative is just like the state of being. This is just the way things are. And imperative is here's what you need to do about the way things are. Another way to think is what's been done for me, and what do I, what do I have to do now? And with this passage, maybe more than any that I remember, um, I read, well, I, I read a lot of commentaries um, but I read through commentaries, and they couldn't agree on whether it was indicative or imperative. Like some that I really, really respect were like, it's imperative when I think most of it is indicative. I, when we started the series in Romans, I found some series that, that pastors had done in Romans and just bookmarked them, thinking maybe I'll listen to other sermons. I don't do that as much as I, as I used to a while ago, but, but, and I haven't done it in Romans. And this week, Friday was phone a friend day remember that what's the what was the game show who wants to be a millionaire this is like pastor version of phone a friend and so i listened to a couple sermons from guys in town one was um the summit jd greer the other was tony merida at um imago day and they disagreed whether it was imperative or indicative so like this is there's a depth we're in a little bit of the deep end of the pool i wanted it to be primarily imperative i think it's primarily it's mostly indicative so the first two points of this is just God is telling us, here's what's changed because of the presence of the Spirit in your life if you are in Christ, if you have surrendered to what Christ has done for you, that it's not your status with God is not based on your performance, but on Christ's performance on your behalf. There is therefore now no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. Then these are things that are true of you because the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And then one imperative at the end. So the contrast of the flesh and the Spirit. Um, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Um, this sounds like, uh, when I read that the first time, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Sounds like imperative. Set your mind on the things of the flesh, and you'll live according to the flesh. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit, and you'll live according to the Spirit. That's what it sounds like to me. The more I read, the more I dug into that, it's not. It's saying those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. There's another translation of it that I think is better, the New American Standard, that says those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Uh, go to the next slide, Mason. Uh, those who who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who, maybe the next slide. Maybe I got ahead of myself in my notes. Okay, maybe I didn't put it in there. There's a version that is a more literal version that, does, that takes out the live according to it. It just says those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. I think I did just get ahead of myself. Um, it's a, it's a, that according to is a state of being. Um, and what he's saying is you are either in the flesh or you are in the Spirit, um, but you're not, you're not both. Um, you don't flip it back and forth. And if you were in Christ, 
then the Spirit of God is in you, and you are in the Spirit. Uh, and the Spirit within you will direct your minds to the things of the Spirit, and the Spirit within you will direct your minds away from the flesh. Um, it, doesn't always, it doesn't always feel like that. Like, it still feels like chapter 7. Like, there's still a wrestling match going on, and, and Paul knows that. So, a few verses later, in chapter 8, verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the first fruits, which means they're second fruits, and third fruits, and fourth fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We've begun to experience something that is going to be completed later, but there's still going to be a struggle. The struggle doesn't tell you that you don't have the Spirit. The struggle actually tells you that you do have the Spirit. Because if you didn't have the Spirit at work in you, you wouldn't care one bit about this passage. And if you don't care one bit about this passage, then you might want to wonder if you've really surrendered to Christ and have the Spirit of Christ in you. Um, Paul talked about this a few weeks ago in terms of um, slavery. And um, he was talking about presenting your members as slaves to unrighteousness or slaves to God. And at the end of that message, I suggested an imperfect metaphor that, that this might be like before Christ, we're floating in a, in a canoe down the Noose River, and we're going whatever direction it goes, you know, towards the sea. Um, and if we want to go in the other direction, then we got to swim against that stream, but that's the way that it's going. And with our flesh, then we're going towards, like away from God and towards unrighteousness. And the, what happens when we surrender to Christ and the Holy Spirit comes into our life is like the stream changes direction, and now you're by default floating in a righteous direction towards God, and you're swimming upstream in the other direction, and that's why the struggle is there. Uh, Paul says to, um, to the Corinthians, he says it this way, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one, for no one who's understand, who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him but he says, we have the mind of Christ. Like we have been given, this point I missed, a spiritual mindset. He has changed our mindset, and that is the help of the Spirit that happens when you've surrendered to Christ. So we have a spiritual mindset that's been given to us by God. Those in the Spirit have peace with God. Romans 8, 6, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Um, I think this is something, I became a Christian when I was a teenager, and I can, I can remember before that point wondering, putting my head down in the pillow at night, wondering if I'd done enough good things that if somehow I died in my sleep, which is highly unlikely, you know, but like I was thinking through this stuff, if I would, had done enough good things that I'd be with God or done too many bad things that I wouldn't, that is not peace with God. And when someone explained to me the gospel, that it's not about what I do for him, but what he's done for me in Christ, and I received that, like, that's peace with God. Um, we've been given that because of what Christ has done for us and the mind set in the spirit. Set on is a, a word that means to make them the absorbing objects of thought, interest, affection, and purpose. Like, it's a... It's a it's a question of what preoccupies us, what drives us, what engrosses us. And when the things of God preoccupy us, when they're the things that we're focused on, there is life and peace. 
when leaning back to last week, those secondary systems of affirmation and condemnation and all the ways that we try and make it on our own preoccupy us, the, the things of the flesh, that's death. Um, one pastor encompassed those things, saying self-will, self-glory, self-gratification, self-righteousness, self-sufficiency. Preoccupying ourselves with those things is setting our minds on the things of the flesh, um, and that's, that's death. But the reality of the love of God expressed through the gospel and how it changes our relationship with God and each other is peace. So we've been given peace with God, and those in the Spirit, have, we have the capacity to please God. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Um, that's a hard statement. That might make you mad. Um, that's the point, is that we don't want to admit or accept that we can't be righteous on our own, but we need God to do it for us. And our resistance, even to that statement, is a reflection of what's going on um, in our hearts. Instead of receiving the truth of the gospel, we're seeking affirmation and pleasure elsewhere. Instead of receiving the things that he has in the world as a gift from him that may be enjoyed in, in his time and in his ways, we grab it and seek it as a, like a playground to do what we want with our purposes, and that doesn't please God. And ultimately, it's not going please, to please us each other. It's not going to please us either. So there's, a, there's this contrast that he draws between the flesh and the spirit. And then he moves into just the benefits of the spirit. So uh, Romans 8, 9 through 11, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. The ifs in these passage, most of them are more like becauses. There's a couple different words for if in the Greek, and it's, it's not like a hypothetical. So it's more like if you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, because the spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, does not belong to him. But because Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Um, if because the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so he gives us some benefits. The spirit of God dwells in you. Um, he says it three times. Dwell is, um, there's another passage where he says, let the word of God dwell richly within you. Dwell is like a, is like a, it's akin to the word abide, like it's let it just set in you. I think that's why he repeats it three times, like there's a richness to that word. And dwell, honestly, the idea that the Spirit of God dwells in us is crazy. Like, we just take that for granted. They lived in a culture where they're surrounded by temples, um, Jewish temples, you know, Roman temples, Greek temples, all sorts of temples to all sorts of gods, and the gods resided in the temple, and you had to bring a sacrifice to the god at the temple, so you went to the god in the temple and hoped to satisfy the god. And so Paul's saying, in another passage, you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Another way of saying he dwells within you. That that god, instead of you coming to him, he has come to you, and he resides within you, is a mind-blowing statement for them, and it ought to be for us. Like God resides in us. Jesus is saying, if you abide in me and I in you, then you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. In the same context, the same um, talk to his disciples where he's going to tell them, I'm going to leave, but I won't leave you alone. I'm going to give you the helper. 
And that's the best thing that can happen to you. The Holy Spirit of God is dwelling um, in us. The Spirit will give life to your mortal body. So if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Um, we do wrestle with the flesh, and, and that feels like death sometimes, but he has started a work, the first fruits of the Spirit, that he is going to finish. And so he is, that's his promise, he is bringing life and ultimately will bring eternal life to our mortal bodies. And so that's the help he's given us, is bringing us a life that we didn't have before. Um, and then in here you have, you've been given access to the unimaginable power of the Holy Spirit. If, because the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The same, if you can remember anything that I say today, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave is not just in the room, he's in you and me right now. That's crazy. Um, that's the indicative. That's what he says is just true. Because of what Christ has done for us, and he's given us the help of the Holy Spirit, that we have the power of the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead in us. Um, honestly, where it takes me is like, we must be getting the imperative wrong. We're not relying on that power in the way that we need to, uh, because we're not experiencing it the way that it seems like we ought to. But that's the blessing of the Holy Spirit, the benefit of the Holy Spirit, the help that we've been given in the struggle from chapter 7. Now... This last point, the call of those who are in the Spirit. Then he gets to what is an imperative. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He's talked about what's been done for me. He's talking now about what I have to do now. Um, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. But even his language, like, this is hard. The understanding the indicative and the imperative what he's done and what we do and how those two things work together they just tell you like this is really hard um my my biggest commentary is written by a guy named douglas moo he teaches i think at trinity in chicago which is a great place he wrote my new testament book that i used in seminary this is a really smart guy i trust this guy as much as anybody he said Neither the indicative, what God has done for us in Christ, nor the imperative, what we are commanded to do, can be eliminated. Then he says, holiness of life is achieved neither by our own unaided effort, nor by the Spirit apart from our participation, but by our constant living out of the life placed in us by the Spirit who has taken up residence within us. And that's in context of saying, like at the end of his commentary about this whole passage saying, hey guys, I know this is super confusing. <laughs> Like, that's just it. It's hard to understand um, how we're supposed to walk this out. In chapter 7, Paul asks, how do, I, how do I change? How do I get free from the flesh? He's desperate and looking for hope, and this is the answer, right? Starting with verse 1, there's no condemnation in that struggle. Um, whatever you feel, it's not wretched man that I am anymore because there's, you, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That struggle can still be there, but the condemnation can't because your standing before the Father doesn't depend on your performance but on Christ, and Christ always gets an A+. Right. Two, 
You're free from the power of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And here, you don't owe the flesh anything. You're free from that. And three, by the spirit, it's possible, it's possible to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And it's going to take a lifetime and longer. But it's possible to see progress in putting to death the deeds of the flesh. It's the only clear imperative, do this, put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit. This word, if you've been around church a few minutes, um, there's, a, there's an old Puritan word called mortification. And mort is like French for death. It's, and so that's, mortification is this, putting to death the things um, of the flesh. Um, there's one British pastor who said that what it means is we have to, he's talking about sin, pull it out, look at it, denounce it, hate it for what it is, and then you've really dealt with it. Um, I have a, a book I read a few years ago, and it cites a, another Puritan um, who talked about repentance, and he said, and I'm missing the sixth one, but it's like sight of sin, sorrow for sin, shame for sin, hatred of sin, and turning from sin. Like goes through the process of what we do with the things of the flesh that we see and being real specific in moving through those. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says this, Christ says, give me all of you. I don't want a certain amount of your time, a certain amount of your talents and money, or a certain amount of your work. I want you, all of you. I have not come to torment, torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here and there. Uh, rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all your desires, all your wants and wishes and dreams. Turn them all over to me and give yourself to me, and I'll make you a new self in my image. Give me yourself in exchange. I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. That's the mortification of the flesh and the fullness of the spirit in our lives. Um, Galatians 5, Paul says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so this is more into that imperative of what, what does that mean to walk by the Spirit? In Colossians, if then or because then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Indicative, you have died and your, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Imperative, set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on earth. Um, earlier in Romans, don't present your members as, as, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. For your members and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. There is a turning from the things of the flesh, but an embracing of the things of the Lord as better. And um, maybe that's why last week came before this week. Um, it's realizing God has something so much better than all the things of the flesh that we play around with. And as I said, when I started on that passage a month or so ago, I realized it hit a vein in me where I was um, buying into condemnation that I didn't need to and shouldn't and can't. And there was some freedom in that passage last week of no condemnation from God, but 
instead primary affirmation from God. You're very good. In Christ, you are very good. And so then a realization of like all these secondary systems that I play around with and occupy my time with that aren't doing me any good um, and, and are, are doing me harm and keeping me from experiencing the fullness of what God has for me. And I thought, man, I want to live out of that freedom. I want to stay there in that place. Um, and how much, I thought at the end of last week, how much of the time are we living out of that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus' place? And how much of the time are we playing around in the secondary systems of affirmation and condemnation of the flesh and of the world? Um, and how much do I let the things of the flesh get in the way of the goodness that God has for us? How much are, with whatever sin it is, whatever self-will, self-glory, self-gratification, self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, are we using like secondary affirmation to poorly fill a hole in ourselves that only primary affirmation and affection from God can fill? And realize, I want to I be living out of last week. And here he's telling us, like, that requires, you've got help to do that, but it requires this putting to death um, the things of the flesh. And man, the ways that I think we do that are the things that we talk about a lot. They're just liturgies of life or routines of fellowshipping with God. It's prayer, not because you have to, but because God is your greatest comfort and you can tell him anything. And, um, and there's no condemnation in any of it in Christ. It's reading your Bible like every day, whatever, a chapter, a few verses a day um, to hear from God, but to be reminded and to go further in understanding who God is and the nature of God and that shaping you. It's gathering with Christians to be encouraged and challenged. One of the things I thought out of last week is, I said this, like our group life coming out of COVID isn't what it was in years past. And what I feel like we really need is people, uh, safe places where we can talk to people about what's really going on and things we're struggling with. But to have someone speak into that, the gospel, and there's no condemnation, and the, you have the spirit within you, and keep going. And the ability to say that about the hard things over and over again, and you need that. We need each other. You need serving. You need to lose your life to save it. You need sharing the gospel with others because if this is true and you don't share it, there's a disconnect. If this is true, it's the most amazing thing anybody's ever heard. And if we're not sharing it, there's, we got to ask ourselves why. And it's exercising faith and taking chances for God um, because if we don't take any chances for God, then maybe we don't believe in the power that's behind it. Like it's all those routines, our fellowship with the Lord, um, but it's also breaking the routines that focus on, on those, focuses on like the secondary systems. And we say this all the time, information is power. And maybe no people in the history of the world has been bombarded with so much useless information as we have. And trying to filter that out is a means of, um, of mortifying the flesh. My latest one is playing games with my screen time. Not like games, trying not to play games, but like trying to get my screen time down I'm down to like an hour and a half. But it was up like four to six hours, and I just realized I'm filling my mind with trash. Um, one of the comments that, that I made when we were in Nicaragua um, that resonated with people uh, was that we were watching, I was watching a guy sort through, 
we were on the edge of the trash dump and this kid that had been there until he was like 10 or 12 with his dad sorting through trash. And then Sunika came along and like brought him in and now he's in college and he's on staff with Sunika and like just changed the course of things. Um, but while he was talking, I was watching this guy down in the riverbed, like just, just like dig an inch or two underneath the surface and he'd pick out, just sort through everything and pick out the tiniest whatever and throw it in a bag to salvage, I guess. Um, but I ended up thinking, how much of our time do we sift through metaphorical trash, like primarily looking just like this? Just, we're looking for something. We don't even know what, you know? Um, and so it's not just establishing routines with God, but breaking routines that keep us distracted. Um, and, and constantly returning back to, there's no condemnation. Because what happens is that call to establish these routines of fellowship with God and to break routines with the world, we're not great at that. And so quickly, the devil says, well, you're, God's ticked at you for that. Like there's condemnation right after there's no condemnation. And so it's just the rehearsal of the gospel over and over again. This is, I'm going to end, the band can come back up, and um, this is um, a couple of these verses, Romans 8, 4, and 5. I thought this was a good summary. It's from the Message Translation. The Message is a translation done by a really great pastor named Eugene Peterson, who was really smart, knew all the languages, and I don't think it's a great idea to do a translation by yourself, and I think it was primarily by himself, but sometimes I think it's just great. So he said, now the law, the law code asked for, what the law code asked for, but we couldn't deliver, is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. And this is saying, like chapter 8, we have the help of the Holy Spirit to do all this stuff. Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's spirit is in them, living and breathing God. Another pastor said, the gospel message is not just stop sinning. That would be an impossible message. It is, behold the love and acceptance of your God, and then you will have the power to stop sinning. God's acceptance is the power that liberates from, uh, from sin. It's not the reward from having liberated ourselves. And um, we're going we're gonna to take communion here in a minute. And communion is um, it's our way of remembering and celebrating the love that he has for us. And it's like him telling us over and over again, you're going to forget this, <laughs> but telling us over and over again, I have done for you all that needs to be done in the body and blood of Christ. And there is therefore no, no condemnation because of what Christ has done on your behalf. And so today, as we do that, um, I mean, I pray we remember that again, that there's no condemnation for us, but we embrace the presence of the help uh, of the power of the Holy Spirit that's in us and, and that God puts in us a desire to stay in that place with him. Um, that we're made for. Father, I thank you for this passage and, and for Paul going from a place of wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death, which we all understand that taking us to, there's no condemnation because of what Christ has done for us. None. Zero. Um, that is something we should reject out of hand because it diminishes what Christ has done for us. And Christ has done everything we need. And you've given us the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's not going to happen all at once, but it's going to happen. And, uh, and you have the part we have a part and God I just pray that you would help us uh, to trust you 
um, and trust the work that you're doing and to know that it's not something that we do on our own, but to see the way that your spirit is at work in us and to cooperate with the things that your spirit is doing in us and more than anything, to want more than anything to be in your presence, Lord, instead of playing around in the trash dump that our world is much of the time, Father. Thank you for the goodness um, that you showed us in Christ, uh, for the freedom that we have in Christ, Lord. May we live that out and be a light to the people around us. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.